Well, before we delve into our first session on the Council of Nicaea, um, I'm going to quickly give you seven reasons why we should study church history. And I could say more. The first reason is this, to learn from our older brothers and sisters. One of the massive benefits of being members of a church is having older brothers and sisters to learn from, folk who've been steeped in the Bible for many years and have learned through experience what living for Jesus is like. Well, as we study church history, you get to expand your family, you see. You get lots more older brothers and sisters. We're simply going to expose ourselves to more of the wisdom of the ages, and that's wisdom we can take on board and apply to our own lives. Second reason is so we don't keep making the same mistakes. Um, As the philosopher said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And if you look through church history, you do see the same kinds of errors crop up time and time again in different guises. We'll see that in our first session today. It can be very tempting to think that all we need to do is pick up the Bible and read. And if we just do that, we'll come to the right conclusions. But it's often those who've abandoned the study of church history and just sort of started from scratch that have ended up with the strangest theology. And that's because they've not been humble enough to learn from their older brothers and sisters. That's what we need to do and not fall into the same mistakes over and over again. Third reason, so we know how to fight the same fights. Um, Joe uh, helpfully picked that up from the book of Jude to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints Uh, because of the presence of men who've slipped into the congregation teaching the wrong thing. Uh, Sadly, there will always be those in and around our churches who aren't believers, but who bring with them sort of plausible lies. Paul, in Acts 20, calls them savage wolves who will not spare the flock, but distort the truth. How do we confront those people? We've got to refute those errors with truth, with persuasion, with argument, with clear thinking. And 2,000 years of church history provides us with a rich treasury of that clear thinking to sort of arm us with so we can draw on it. Fourth reason is to rebuke the cultural norms we're blind to. I'll say that again. It's an extraordinary sentence. To rebuke the cultural norms we're blind to. Let me explain what that means. I was born in 1982. I've lived my entire life in the UK and most of it in the northwest of England, and I was born into a white, reasonably middle class family. Now, that means I've grown up with a certain set of assumptions and ideas about how life works. For example, I think that Test cricket is the greatest achievement of modern civilization. Now, I may be right about that, and I am, or I may be wrong, and I'm not, but I will never know simply by surrounding myself with the same kind of people as me who all agree with me. Um, obviously, there's not many, very many in this room, I don't think, but I will never find that out. What I need is someone from another culture. I need someone from overseas or like Birmingham. Joe hates cricket, uh, so I need him. I, I, I need someone to give me a different point of view and help me question things I've always believed. I might still come up with the same answer, but at least now I have a reason for believing that. I'm not just assuming it. The same thing is true in theology. I was reading some letters recently written by John Newton, who was an evangelical vicar and hymn writer in the 18th century. He wrote Amazing Grace, so he's a good guy. Uh, And during his time, a vaccine was developed for smallpox. Smallpox was basically Ebola. It was awful. Just killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And at the time, in his letters, the churches are having this huge debate as to whether they should take it or not. I don't know about you. To me, that just sounds bonkers. 
If they came up with a vaccine for Ebola tomorrow, we'd be in the queue, wouldn't we? We'd just get in there straight away. We wouldn't even think about it. But these guys back in the 18th century weren't sure. They seriously weren't sure whether they should take this vaccine or not. Why not? Because they feared that if they took the smallpox vaccine, they would be in danger of removing all suffering from their lives. And they knew that the Bible said that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character hope. And they wanted to keep the option open for God to give them smallpox as a means for shaping their character and giving them hope. Now, that might be right or that might be wrong, but it's a question that we would never, ever ask, right? As 21st century Britons raised on our culture's obsession with health, which is basically an idol, we would never ask that. And so reading John Newton's letter makes us go, ah, and go back to the Bible and work out whether our assumptions are correct or not in light of questioning from a different time. Fourth reason, fifth reason, is to know where contemporary thinking has come from. I said um, before that one of our temptations is to think we don't need to understand church history because, frankly, we've got enough problems. Um, We've got contemporary challenges. But really, if we want to understand those contemporary challenges, if we want to know why other Christians think differently than we do, or even why non-Christians in the West think differently than we do, the seed of those ideas is often found in church history. And understanding where the seed comes from gives us a better insight into contemporary ideas and what we should think about them. We're going to see some examples of that as we go along. Sixth reason, is to, possibly the most important one, is to testify to Christ's power. One of the thrilling things about studying church history is to see how God has preserved and guided his people over thousands of years, how he's used the most unlikely of people to establish and build his church, how he's sustained true faith in the midst of threats and persecution, and how good the Lord Jesus Christ is. We'll hear it on the lips and see it in the lives of our older brothers and sisters as we go on. The final reason, number seven, is to hear great stories, just for the sheer joy of a good story. So for example, today's story is about how a single Greek letter changed the course of history. It involves dancing girls and Father Christmas. So are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Let me set the scene with a threat. It's early in the fourth century. The Christian churches in the Roman Empire have gone through some horrific persecution under a guy called Diocletian, but now he's the emperor. Bad dude. A new emperor has emerged, a guy called Constantine who became a Christian and legalized Christianity. Uh, For perhaps the first time, the Christian churches have got a little bit of state protection, a little bit of safety. But as so often, when the church is safe from threats to the outside, problems start to emerge on the inside. Satan's got a couple of of strategies. He either persecutes you or gives you some heretics. He just switches between the two. They're both, none of them work. The chief problem inside the church was a, was a theological question. What is the relationship between Jesus and God? That's the big theological question. And actually that question had been rumbling around for a while and there were already some slightly dodgy answers out there. One group of people led by a guy called Sibelius, can't find a picture of Sibelius because he's a heretic, um, came to be called modalists. They reckoned that God had appeared in different guises, different modes throughout history. Sometimes he'd appeared as the Father, sometimes he'd appeared as the Son, sometimes he'd appeared as the Spirit. That same guy, different hats. That's who Jesus was. He was God wearing the Son hat. Can anyone tell me a problem with that, theologically? 
No relationship. Yeah. That's the major problem. If, if, if God is the one guy wearing different hats, then when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, who's he praying to? He's just talking to himself. All that stuff that we were looking at, if you're with us in the series of Hebrews, about Jesus' obedience and his trust and the way he, he committed himself to his Father is a lie if Jesus and God are basically the same dude. So that was rubbish. And um, that idea was pretty quickly refuted, actually. But in the year 318 AD, a new idea emerged, which had the benefit of being really simple and easy to understand and had the weight of a really seriously good marketing campaign. It was begun by the guy, rather handsome young chap, you've got on your sheet there, called Arius of Alexandria, looking a bit wistful. Arius said that, quite simply, Jesus was a being created by God. He was a creature. He was not God. That's simple to understand, isn't it? Uh, he did that by citing Bible verses like the ones you've got on your sheet. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Aha, he was born. First, but still born. Um, in Proverbs 8, there's this great uh, 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 hymn by, spoken by wisdom. You know, wisdom is speaking in Proverbs 8. And people have said, well, Jesus is the wisdom of God. So we're hearing Jesus speak. Proverbs 8, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. So Arrow says, there you go. That's the wisdom of God speaking. He said, God created me. Or John 14, 28, Jesus himself says, the Father is greater than I. So Arius took all these verses and said, well, you know, what, what would you want? Jesus is the firstborn. He is a creature. He's the first creature. He's worthy of our respect and our honor, and he's done amazing things, but he's not worthy of our worship. And to back this up, he came up with some songs. Uh, here's one on the screen. Um, so if the band would like to come up. No, um, just Jack, actually. No, uh, so it says here, the uncreated God has made the sun, the beginning of things created, and by adoption, God made the sun into an advancement of himself. Yet the sun's substance is removed from the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father, nor does he share the same substance. God is the all-wise Father, and the Son is the teacher of his mysteries. The members of the Holy Trinity share unequal glories. The tune would have to be a belter, wouldn't it? <laughs> But uh, that's, it probably worked better in Greek. Um, so that, do you see what he's saying there? Jesus is, is not worthy of the same glory as the Father. It's created by the Father. And so whenever anyone tried to sort of counter Arius or engage him in debate, he'd start singing one of these songs. Uh, he even employed women to sing and dance around him and chant his slogans in Greek. One of uh, them is this one. Can we have that on the screen? This says, En pote hote uk en. Can you say that? En pote hote uk en. And again, en pote hote uk en. See how it works? You get a bit of a beat to that. That's absolutely banging. Um, this means there was when he was not. In other words, there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. He was brought into being, and God used to be all on his own. I'm sorry if that's the first Greek sentence you've ever learned, and it's a heresy. But, you know. Um, <clears throat> so you can see how that might have caught on. Simple, easy to understand, bit of some uh, banging dance tunes. Now, before we move on to how Christians at the time responded to that, it's worth asking this. Why would anyone think that? Why would you think something like that? And there's a very easy answer to that. The easy answer is because he's an evil heretic, because he's a savage wolf. That's true, but we've got to do better than that. 
Very, very few people get up in the morning and think, I'm going to deliberately propagate error to destroy the church. There are some, but very, very few people get that far. Most people who end up in error are trying to preserve something true in a horribly unbalanced way. What, why did Arius say that? What was the truth that Arius was trying to protect? Well, Arius would say he had a passion for God's name. He was trying to protect the monarchy of God. Monarchy doesn't just mean being the king. That's the way we use the word monarchy, but it means sole ruler, the only king. Monos, Greek for only. Arche, Greek for ruler. There you go, more Greek. Um, this one's a lot better. Uh, it's a very important, important idea. God is the sole creator of the universe, and so he's the sole ruler of the universe. So these verses uh, express that idea. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. Monos, monarchy. Secondly, Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Because God is the creator of all, he is the sole ruler and owner of all. Therefore, if something is a creature, he can't be the ruler. It's God the creator alone deserves the glory. There can only be one creator. God is a monarch. He doesn't share his glory with another. And so Arius looked at people saying Jesus was God and said, no, no way you can't say that. That ruins God's monarchy because now there are two rulers, two creators, and they must be rivals and that won't do. In addition to that, he'd heard the teachings of a guy called Oregon. Have we got a picture of Oregon? There he is. Uh, who was also sort of wrestling with this issue. Oregon said that Jesus was God, but there were different degrees of divinity. So the Father, if you like, was sort of more God than Jesus was. That Jesus was God, but to a sort of lesser degree. And Arius heard that and thought, that's rubbish, that is. Clearly, the simplest thing to say is that Jesus isn't God, rather than try to compromise God's monarchy with this strange idea of degrees of divinity. So Arius give him his due, wasn't completely bonkers. But it's important to know he was opposed very, very quickly. Often people who want to unsettle Christians, you might have heard this yourself, they will say things to you, they'll point to people like Oregon and Arius and say things like, look, the church's faith has been all over the place in church history. What you believe now is nothing like what people used to believe. You can't possibly be sure of your faith because the church is changing its mind all the time. Has anyone ever heard something like that thrown at them? I'll come back to that objection at the end. But for now, it's worth noting that Arius was called out as a heretic immediately. It was a quick and decisive response. Uh, Arius's bishop, Alexander. Have we got Alexander? There he is. Look at that dress. That's awesome. Um, instant, thanks. Thank you, Michael. Alexander instantly told... All right. <laughs> yeah, did you? Um, <clears throat> Alexander said, no, you're wrong. Um, but Alexander also said Oregon was wrong. Alexander said that Jesus was equal to the Father. He must be regarded as fully divine, not a creature, but not a lesser God than the Father. He must be worshipped as fully God. Arius, in turn, this one gets a little bit complicated, he accused Alexander of being a Sabellian, of being a modalist. You're saying, no, hang on, you can't say that. Alexander, you're saying that God sometimes is the Father and sometimes is the Son, is putting on different hats. And the argument rumbled on for a few years. Eventually, Arius was excommunicated for heresy, but he gathered some more followers, remember, dance music. 
And eventually the Emperor Constantine, you remember him, decided out enough of all that and called a council, the Council of Nicaea. Now, if you've read any uh, Dan Brown novels, then well done for getting through them, because they're awful. Um, but in the Da Vinci Code, here's what Dan Brown says about the Council of Nicaea, which, by the way, he consistently spells wrong, despite the fact that I've spelt it wrong on the top of this sheet, which is very annoying. Um, through the mouth of his character, Sir Lee Teeming, he says this, My dear, until that moment in history, now see ya, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nevertheless, a mortal Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. A relatively close vote at that. We've already seen that that's nonsense. Uh, Not one of the 318 bishops gathered at Nicaea thought of Jesus as a mortal man. Whether they agreed with Alexander or they've been influenced by Oregon, both of them said that Jesus was God. And actually, Arius didn't think that Jesus was a mortal man either. Everyone at the council came to it believing Jesus was the Son of God. They differed on precisely what that meant. Well, there was a bit of a debate, and here's where the single uh, Greek letter comes in. If you just flip over your sheet. Alexander, who is, you may have guessed, a bit of a hero. He's our, he's our, he's our older brother in this. He argued that the Bible taught that Jesus, God the Son, shared the same essence as God the Father. They were of the same being. They were the same substance. There's only one God, and Jesus is that one God, and the Father is that one God, and the Spirit is that one God, and that one God is in three persons. That's what Alexander thought the Bible taught, and he and his mates expressed that with the word homoousios. Can we say that? Homoousios. Good, very nice. Uh, Homo means the same Usios means substance, same substance, there you go. Arius and his mates were, of course, not happy about that. They wanted to say Jesus was heterousios. Can we say that? Heterousios, that he was completely different to God. Different thing, different substance. No one was very happy about that. No one thought Arius was right, apart from a few guys he'd managed to bring along because of the dance. But another chap called Eusebius of Caesarea try to find a compromise. He was the kind of guy who wanted to keep everyone happy. So he came up with a different word, which is homoiousios. Let's say that. Homoiousios. Do you see there's one letter different, just a little I uh, in the middle there? Homoi means similar. Eusebius said, look, you know, why can't we just all get along? Why don't we say that Jesus is just similar to God, very like God, he's very close to God? Do we really have to say he's the same? Well, again, there was a bit of debate. It got pretty heated. Uh, Arius' habits of singing instead of engaging in debate became very annoying. Uh, And in fact, there is one report that this happened. Is this going to be readable and legible? Thanks, Joe. One of the Joes. The guy on the right being slapped is Arius. The guy on the left is a guy called St. Nicholas of Myra. Uh, he was, you know, from Myra and about Turkey. Uh, St. Nicholas is a word that might, you know, St. Nicholas later became known as Santa Claus. That's Father Christmas slapping someone. <laughs> so uh, this, next slide. Let's have a... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good, thanks. Thanks, Joe. Let's have the lights back on. Um, <clears throat> there you go. 
as a family, we're not that keen on Father Christmas. We get a bit annoyed about him, but I might bring him back this year, you know, but in a more of a slapping heretics kind of way. That's probably not, I mean, that's fun, but please don't go around punching people. Let's just, let's just talk. Um, so the debate was heated, but it was actually quite one-sided. The idea of homoousios was expressed in very clear terms in the words of the Creed of Nicaea, which are put to the bishops to vote on. It's only a sheet of this, yeah. Uh, you will recognize this, I hope. Uh, they decided this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. Listen to this. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being, homoousios, with the Father. Through him all things were made. You can see how very clearly they put this. Jesus is God from God, begotten, not made. Jesus is still the Son of the Father. In some mysterious way, Jesus is dependent on the Father. Um, if you want to go and chase that up, by the way, read John chapter 5 in your own time, especially verse 26. Jesus expresses that really clearly, and we can talk about that later over tea if you like. Um, but he was not made by the Father. That's the point. He's not a creature. He is of one being with the Father. He is the creator. He and the Father are one. That's John 5 again. That's what the bishops confessed, and far from Dan Brown's idea that the vote was very close, it was actually unanimous. All 318 bishops signed up to this creed, uh, most of whom used to follow Oregon but decided that this was, this was good. In fact, all but two of Arius's followers were also convinced. And Arius and his two remaining mates, loyal but useless, were excommunicated again. And in fact, they were anathematized. The council said this is so wrong that it is not Christian. Anathema is sort of a word of condemnation. He's saying if you don't believe that Jesus is God... The council says you can't call yourself a Christian. That's how serious this error is. It is an error of someone who is a non-Christian will make. That's very strong, isn't it? We'll come back to that. So what was it that won the council in favor of the position we now confess in the Creed of Nicaea? We might think, well, it's just obvious. The Bible just says that Jesus is God. I mean, come on. It says it all the time. Philippians 2, he was in very nature God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. John 20, Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God. I mean, it's obvious. But you have to remember that Arius was also trading in Bible verses. He was throwing in John 14, Colossians 1, Proverbs, a few of the bits and pieces which on their own seem to say something quite different. Out of context, those verses look quite unsettling. What was needed was context for those verses. Not just, in fact, the context of the books Arius was quoting from, which was pretty helpful. If you've ever studied Colossians or John or Proverbs, you can probably think of an answer to, those, uh, to the reason why those verses aren't saying what Arius was trying to make them say. Not just that, but the context of the whole Bible, the logic of salvation. And that's where the guy on your sheet here uh, comes in, Athanasius. Athanasius was a pretty junior member of Nicaea, really. He wasn't a bishop at the time. He was just an advisor to Alexander. But he basically went off and did the big theological work for Alexander. He was the guy that put the arguments together. He was the sort of brains behind the operation. And over the next few decades, as Arius' teaching still kept cropping up, the songs must have been awesome, you guys, Athanasius was the big defender of the conclusions of the Council of Nicaea. He wrote loads about it, really helpful stuff. And most of his work was about this idea that if Jesus is not God, then salvation in the Bible doesn't work. 
It's the logic of the salvation which the whole Bible teaches, not just individual proof texts that we need to pay attention to. So here's a section from his brilliant work, well worth reading, quite short. So there's get it in a version with a lovely introduction by C.S. Lewis. Get a hold of that. It's called On the Incarnation. <clears throat> Athanasius spends a lot of time in that book on the fall of mankind. He states very clearly that the real problem is that sin has put us under the sentence of death and corrupted the image of God in people. He spends ages on that. And the reason is because he has this insight that if you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to understand the problem he came to fix. That's why you guys are doing the Bible overview, having such a great year. There's no point just cherry-picking verses. You've got to take the whole sweep of the Bible. Mankind is dead in their sins. They can't make themselves better. Athanasius in the book devotes a chapter to proving why just repentance is not good enough. If we just say, I'm sorry, isn't that good enough? Athanasius says, no, we're so far gone that merely being sorry and trying to change isn't going to work on its own. The sentence of death still hangs over us. And he says, if God is going to be God, he needs to enact that sentence of death. He can't say, as he did to Adam and Eve, you will surely die and then not have us die. Athanasius says this, I haven't put this on your sheet, just listen. He says, it was unthinkable that God, the father of truth, should go back upon his word regarding death in order to ensure our continued existence. It's unthinkable for God to do that. God can't just change his mind. He must remain true to his word, but that leaves us in a terrible state. We are dead, corrupted. We need to be recreated in the image of God. So here's what Athanasius says. Look at this carefully. <clears throat> what, or rather who was it, that was needed for such grace and such recall as we required? Recall there meaning re-establishment of a relationship with God. Who, save the word of God himself, who also in the beginning had made all things out of nothing. His part it was, and his alone, both to bring again the corruptible to incorruption and to maintain for the Father his consistency of character with all. In other words, so that God can still be truthful, so that God's sentence of death can still happen. For he alone, Jesus, being word of the Father and above all, was in consequence both able to recreate all and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be an ambassador for all with the Father. The word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate man made after the image. Do you see the point? If the problem is that we are dead and we need recreating, then only God can recreate us. Okay? Jesus is recreating a people in his own image. Saw that in 1 Corinthians, didn't we? We need to be more like Jesus. That's, the, that's what we've been made. We're in Christ. We're in his image. And that image must be the image of God. Can't be the image of anyone else. If Jesus is a lesser being than God, then he's not able to recreate us as we intended to be. He's actually a rival to God, creating a people in a different image, which is actually against God. He's got to be God. That's Athanasius' point. Also in there, if he's not God, he's not worthy to suffer on our behalf. He's not a precious enough sacrifice to cover the sins of so many. If he's not God as well, he has no right to be an ambassador to God, to be a go-between. He must be both God and man in order to be go-betweeners. And he goes on in this vein, brilliantly, for many chapters. That's why Athanasius said that Arius was so dangerous, and why he said that Eusebius' homoousios, 
the one with the eye, the similar one, that won't do either. You can't just have a compromise on this. Salvation demands that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Nothing else can save us. And that's why the council was so strong in its denunciation of Arius. That's why they said, not only that's a bit foolish, that's why they said that's anathema, that's not Christian. Because it was not saving. Couldn't save anyone. Well, let's draw a few implications as we close. The first is the need for precision. At some point in this talk, you may have had the thought, isn't this all a little bit nitpicky? All this stuff about homoousios versus homoousios. You might have felt your eyes sort of glazing over a bit and felt like it was all splitting hairs. Let me tell you, we haven't even scratched the surface of how complicated this gets. Later councils had to sort out issues like the difference between the language of essence, substance, person, and nature. What's the difference between those four? Debates about whether Jesus' incarnation was an hypostatic or n hypostatic or both. It's both. Uh, it seems to get very complicated very quickly, and we might, like Eusebius, think, why can't we all just get along? Does it matter? Can't we just say that Jesus is the Son of God and just leave it at that? Well, the answer is that it matters very much when the truth of God's word comes under attack, when error comes in. We could just say that Jesus is the Son of God if we all meant the same thing by that, and we were confident that we all meant the same thing by that. The difficulty comes when people want to say, yes, he's the Son of God, but I think that means something a little bit different. Then as Christians, we must be precise, because as we've seen, once you start fiddling with definitions, it's very easy to end up with massive problems. You may have heard this, and Danny likes to talk about this analogy a lot. The doctrines of the church are like a car engine. You heard this? People have heard this? Not so much. Um, If you fiddle with one component of a car engine, it's not just that component which breaks. Eventually, over time, the whole engine collapses. That's what we see at Nicaea. Even the smallest tweak, even the introduction of a single Greek letter, actually makes the whole plan of salvation impossible. So there is a need, especially at times of attack, to be precise about what we believe, to safeguard the truth. Second implication is the ongoing need to refute error. The Nicene decision wasn't close. It wasn't ever going to, it was only ever going to go one way. And so in a sense, the churches could have just got on with teaching the truth and sort of ignore Arius and his bunch of followers and just leave them to get on with their nonsense, rather than spend time and money and energy having this big debate and writing all these books. But it had to be done. Because as Athanasius proved, salvation depended on it. People's lives were being ruined by this teaching. And they still are today. The Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on your door, they are Arians. They don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe he's a creature. They're not Christians. They believe many of the same things we do, and they will say to you that we're all Christians together. They are not. And frankly, they are ruining people's lives and sending people to hell by making them think they're right with God when they're not. It is crucial that we as a church continue to do what our forefathers did. Not just say, this is the truth, but say of other things, and this is not. This is not the truth. I was once, um, I led a Christianity Explored uh, course, it's about 10 years ago, with um, a guy who came from um, the Coptic church in Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian Coptic church has a version of this teaching still. Still believing that Jesus is somehow lesser than God. And we were looking at, you know you do in Christianity Explored, looking at Mark and looking at the power God has over nature, over sickness, over death, and over sin. And when we got to the over sin, he wept and wept. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, I never knew Jesus could do that. 
He'd been in the church all his life. And because his church didn't believe that Jesus was fully God, he never believed that Jesus could fully forgive his sin. Became a Christian, wonderfully. But that's, that's what's going on. We need to refute her and we need to be strong on this. Gentle, don't punch people. Just argue with them, but, but please do it. Third thing, the need to study scripture in context. Uh, people often say scornfully, are ah, you Christians? You're so sure of what you believe, but you know you can make the Bible say anything. And that's true. Arius shows you that you can make the Bible say anything you like, but you can only do that if you ignore the context. If you ignore the context of the book you're reading and ignore the logic of salvation. And so when your Bible study leader in, in half an hour or so says, come on, when you look at the context, they're not just being pedantic, they might be saving your life. Um, as well as that, it reminds us of the need to keep hearing God's word, keep studying, keep listening, so we'll grasp more and more the logic of salvation and not fall into silly errors. And the fourth implication, and obviously the most important, is that Jesus Christ is to be worshipped. Not just admired, not just imitated. He is God. He is our Lord and our Saviour. Our whole lives must revolve around him. He is the glorious, eternal God and is worthy of our whole lives. Let's use this song um, to pray uh, and to thank God um, for Jesus, who is the word of God the Father, shall we?